Father, as we pray that, that wonderful song, as we make it our plea, we ask, Lord, that you would unite us in Christ so that the world will know that Jesus lives and there is hope of heaven. Father, I pray that all our personal agendas would fade away in light of your clear teaching as we embrace your word and as we humbly follow it. May your spirit rest upon us now in this time of study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme verse for 1 Thessalonians, I would say, would be chapter 1 and verse 7. This is where the Apostle Paul says that this little church in Thessalonica was a model church. They became a model church quite quickly. I mean, they were only formed maybe a couple months before Paul wrote this letter. He was there just a short time in the city, preached the gospel. People got saved and formed a little assembly. He had to flee because of persecution. They continued to endure the persecution. Paul was afraid that maybe the persecution would fracture the little church, so he sent Timothy, and Timothy comes back with a glowing report. They're together, they're strong, they're growing. And Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to praise them, to praise God and to thank them, to give them a little further instruction. And he says, quickly, your testimony went out to all Greece, even the whole world. And you became a model of what it is to be a believing church. A model in all Macedonia and Achaia, northern parts of Greece, and then it spread throughout the entire world. The Greek word for model is tupas, type. You became the prototype upon which other churches should be designed. You have the proper dimensions, attitude, value, spirit. May other churches be patterned after yours. But I'm very thankful that this model church was not a perfect church. <laughs> Years ago, I don't know if they still do this, that Moody Bible Institute at their pastor's conference used to give out an award for the church of the year. Church of the year. And I... I don't know, I, somehow that didn't set well with me. I, I just think that's a little weird. Maybe it's because we never won, but because, <laughs> but because, first of all, to determine the church of the year, don't you have to examine all the churches? And when you say this is the church of the year, people get the idea that that church is, you know, somehow above all the others, and maybe there's no problems, but there are problems in that church of the year. I know there are because they have people. And if you have people, you have problems. Think of the modeling industry. That's a very difficult, extremely challenging profession. The models are often treated like property and abuses abound. But what you see in a magazine cover is not reality, it's fantasy. Well, there's a real person behind it, but before the picture was taken, they had all kinds of makeup and things done, uh, sometimes surgically to their person. And then after the picture was taken, they came in and brushed it up a little bit and changed it. And so the final result is often not a real person. Did you know that every model has imperfections? They do all they can to cover them up. 
In fact, a survey was done among models, and they found, it, uh, found out that a high majority of them are very insecure people with low self-esteem. You would think the opposite because of their looks. But they seem to focus on the problems. Well, I'm glad this model church has imperfections, and I'm glad Paul is willing to talk about them because I have a rough time relating to something that's not real. But this is a real church. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're talking about a faith worth following. But it's not a model church that's perfect. And so when we fall, we have to know how to follow. We know how, need to know how to respond and relate and, and seek somehow to be restored. This is an interesting section of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to begin reading with verse 12. And I think a good way to describe this is how to get along in the church of God or how to get along in the family of God. He mentions the word brothers right away in verse 12. It's a very, this is a very tender letter from Paul because he's talking to family. In fact, he's going to mention the name brothers or the, the word brothers five times in this one chapter. Verse 12, verse 14, we'll see again. And then at the end of the chapter, he's going to say, Brothers, pray for us. Brothers, greet one another. Brothers, share these truths with each other. You see, we not only belong to the light, as he said earlier in chapter 5, we're not only children of the light and belong to the day, we belong to the same family. And we need to learn how to get along in the family of God. He dealt with weightier matters earlier, the gospel and how the gospel came and won their hearts and how they preached the gospel in their midst and the second coming of Christ, and now he's dealing with very practical matters. These are uh, short appeals and commands compressed together that talk about how to relate to one another in the family of God. Look at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers... And, of course, by implication, sisters, this is the brotherhood, all believers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that no one pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind. Be kind to each other and to everyone else. In this section, I think the Apostle Paul teaches us how to relate to different groups in the church. First of all, we need to learn how to relate to those who lead us. First two verses. And in talking about our response to the leaders, he tells us about the work that the leaders have to do. Notice in verse 12, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you, and who admonish you. The work of the ministry is described here in very specific terms. It's interesting that we don't have a title for these people. They're not called pastors or elders here. Later on, they're called the episkopos, those who serve as overseers, 
or the presbyteros, those because of age and maturity are elders and lead, or even the pastors who are to lead as shepherds over the flock. But no name is given. Their work is just described. Now, most of you know that pastors only work one day a week. And even that is half a day for many churches. But actually, if they do the work right, it's hard work. That's the first description. Those who work hard, and they're among you. They're not just leading you. They are one of you, and their work is difficult. In fact, Paul later on is going to describe it to the hard labor that a farmer does. And in Timothy, he'll talk about those who labor hard in the word and teaching, in doctrine. It's hard work if it's done right. And hopefully those who are in that position are indeed working very hard. Notice, secondly, that it is work that has some degree of oversight. They are over you. Now, I believe the first thing to be said about a pastor is not so much that they have authority over someone, but that they are servants to the church. That's Colossians chapter 1. Because the chief characteristic of one who would lead is humility, not authority. And we are warned over and over again, don't lord it over the flock. But when all of that is said and done, those who are spiritual leaders must lead, and there's some responsibility. In fact, in this word, there is the idea not just of authority, but the responsibility to care. And you think of a shepherd and his sheep. By the way, in churches, the tendency, it's so easy for pastors to fall into the error of domination, Dicta uh, kind of dictators over the flock, and it's so easy for the flock to fall into insubordination, kind of like the shepherd and the sheep. For sheep to be stubborn and for the leaders to be oppressive, and that happens in many places. So this is a call for those who are over you, not just with authority, but with great care. They're servants of the church. And then finally, sometimes they even have to admonish you. It's a word that speaks of a negative, corrective word. It's a word that seeks to write something when it is wrong. It's not a harsh tone, but it's a big brother type of tone. And one who loves and seeks to bring someone back. That's the work of those who are spiritual leaders. And by the way, it's impossible to do this work unless the church is praying and unless these people have the Spirit of God filling them. So that's the work of those who lead. Now, what about the proper response to those who are being led? Well, the Scripture makes that pretty clear, too. It says you need to respect those who work. Verse 13, hold them in the highest regard in love, not because of who they are, but because of what they do, because of their work. They care for your souls. And somehow pastor and people need to get along so that there is a spirit of harmony in the church. And if pastors do their work, and if the people respond, respecting those who are called of God to do the work, 
And not only respecting them, but there's a sense of deep appreciation and there's this sense of warm affection. Why, that church, that church can go places. And notice the result. The result is when there's the proper work and there's the proper response, peace. That's the final result. There is a spirit of tranquility in the body of Christ so that the work of God can go forward. How difficult it is to pastor in a congregation where there is strife, where there are quarrels, resentment, conflicts. And by the way, you can sense it in a church sometimes when you walk in the doors, can't you? You know the battle is going on. You, you know that it's being fought. You know that people are against one another. There's just not the spirit of peace. But we're told in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 that we are to do whatever it takes, make every effort to maintain the spirit of unity in the bond or through the bond of peace. The way we are unified is to live at peace with God and at peace with one another. Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone else. So if you've got a battle with someone in this church, it's hurting the church, and you need to resolve that conflict. And if you've got a problem with authority, then address the authority in the right way. Uh, go to the leaders and, and make your case. But there's got to be peace, not domination, not insubordination, but wonderful unity together. Some churches get so sideways with one another, that is, people with people and people with pastor, that they end up splitting and do great harm to the cause of Christ. First church I was ever part of, I was a youth pastor, and when I got there, I didn't know the battles that were going on, but they surfaced quickly, and the church split, and I felt like a child from a divorce. And now when I go back to that city, or early on when I went back to that city, I was invited by both parts of the families to come and worship or preach, and I didn't know what to do. I heard of a church in West Virginia that split over white and brown bread. That's true. Now, here's the thinking, and it sounds almost logical. Our bodies are the temple of God, and you need to take care of them, right? Right. And, you know, in this whole area of nutrition, and someone got in the area of nutrition, there are some things that are, are healthy for our bodies and some things that are bad for our bodies, right? Right. The rule is, if it tastes good, it's bad for you, and if it doesn't taste good, it's good for you. But then they went further, and they established the fact that uh, we've done studies, and white bread is bad for you. And so, logically speaking, if you're going to eat white bread, you're disregarding the temple of God, and if you're disregarding the temple of God, you're not a godly person. And the church has battled over that, and I'm sure there were other issues, but this was the straw that broke the camel's back. And you would go into the church, you know, and the white loafers were on one side and the wheat were on the other. And finally, they just split and started their own churches. And Jesus gets a black eye in that community because they'll know we are Christians by our love. God wants his church to be a church at peace. Reconciled to him, reconciled to one another, and going forth to accomplish his mission on planet Earth. So we need to know how to relate 
to those who lead us. Secondly, we need to learn how to relate to those who need us. And now the Apostle Paul is going to mention three different groups in the church. He might have hinted at them in chapter 4. Some scholars believe that now he's simply reviewing these three groups that he's already dealt with in chapter 4. But here they are. The idle, verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. By the way, did you notice the term brothers? Same term used in verse 12, right? In verse 12, it was the body responding to their leaders. So now it's the body ministering to the body. It's so easy for people to say, well, just let the professionals do this kind of thing. No, God has called some people to help equip the church to do the work of the ministry. This is the work of the ministry that all of us are to do. And the first is to warn the idol. Now, the word idol literally means those who are out of step or disorderly. It's a military term. It speaks about those who have broken the ranks. Idleness may be one of those things, but it's a broader term than just being idle. Now, we already talked about some who thought the second coming of Christ was coming very soon, and so they quit their jobs. And then Jesus didn't come, and they didn't have jobs. And they needed food to eat, so they went to the other believers and said, act like believers, be generous to us, give us food, give us clothing, give us shelter. And later on in chapter or in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is going to say, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. I quoted that at the 930 service, and someone shouted out aloud, amen. <laughs> you know what kind of problems they're having in that family. But the point is, the idle are acting disorderly. They're not marching in step with the Savior of the body of Christ. They're disruptive. And so we need to warn those who get out of line. That's your job. My job, too, because I'm one of you, but that's the job of the body of Christ, not just the professionals. You see, Paul is admitting that in our family we have some problem children. Almost all families have problem children, right? They usually turn out to be pastors and missionaries, but you're dealing with them when they're growing up, and it's not an easy thing to do. And sometimes you've got to warn. The second group, the timid, the faint-hearted. Encourage the timid. These are individuals who are easily frightened, perhaps because of the persecution around them. Maybe they were afraid because of the second coming of Christ and loved ones who had already died. And so Paul treated this group with his exposition on, in his sermon on the second coming of Christ and that the dead will rise first. Maybe they're afraid that when Christ comes, judgment will come, and they're not sure that they're truly saved, and so they're timid. Timothy is their patron saint in the sense that he's the one to whom Paul said, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of a sound mind, a spirit of strength. And that strength comes from knowing and trusting the Word of God. So there's a group in the church that are very anxious about all kinds of things, and that causes them to faint or to quit. We need to encourage them. The third group, called the weak, 
These are the people who really can't stand on their own. Weakness in this context probably talks about the tendency to crumble whenever temptation comes their way. And maybe in particular, the sexual temptation that Paul mentioned in chapter 4. So you'd have the weak dealing with a sexual temptation, uh, the uh, idle as they were thinking about the coming of the Lord and they stopped working, or the faint-hearted who needed to be encouraged that when the Lord comes, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. We have these groups in the church. Now, the weak, what do you do with the weak? Well, the word help means to put your arm around them and hold them up so they don't fall. Isn't that a great term? you got to be close enough to someone to put your arm around them so they don't fall. And that's what you're supposed to do to the weak. Now, to be honest with you, our tendency with the idle is maybe to snap at them, you know? Hey, get to work. Pull your own weight. You know, kind of in that harsh tone. With the timid, we say, get a backbone. Learn to trust the Lord. And with the weak, we say, man, if you can't stop, stand up in temptation, I really doubt whether you're even saved. We give them that kind of encouragement. Warn the idle, encourage the timid, help the weak. And now get this. The last phrase in the verse, be patient with all three of these groups. Be patient with everyone. That's how you deal with it. It's peace in the assembly that we're looking for, an, an atmosphere of peace between people and leaders, and then this spirit of patience with one another because we all have problems. Now, again, this is not compromising truth. But often those who only see truth are very hardliners, and they have little patience for others until they themselves fall. Be patient with everyone. What is patience? Patience is allowing God to do his work in his time. It's allowing God's will to be foremost, dominant. Patience is where I pull back and, and I submit my desires and my plans to the sovereign timing and purposes of God. It's where I let God be God. That's what patience is all about. People may be difficult and demanding. They may be argumentative and rude, and we are to be patient with every one of them. They may not be doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they need to be warned. They need to be encouraged and lifted up. They need to be held up patient with every person in every situation. You know why? Because this is an attribute of God. This is the same word that describes God as being long-suffering. Aren't you glad he is? Aren't you glad God is a long-suffering God? And if you're filled with the Spirit, Galatians 5 says... The evidence of that will be love, joy, peace, patience. So every time I blow my top, it's a clear indicator that somehow the Spirit is not in control. Have you ever noticed a person who's walked with the Lord a long time, there's just a sense of tranquility and contentment and patience that many of us don't possess? Hebrews 10.36, you have need of patience. Every time I read that, I think the divine finger comes right out of the Bible and points to my soul. Don, you have need of patience. I say, yes, Lord. 
I don't think I've ever read that verse without responding. Yes, I do. I've got a long way to go. An enduring patience with the most difficult people is really a real test of true Christian character. But it's not easy. <laughs> the problem children and the family are difficult. It takes great patience to raise a family. Great patience. And God is long-suffering with us. We've got to be patient with one another. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says, Tribulation worketh patience. That's the old King James. Troubles, problems, develop patience in us. We need to be patient with one another. Did you ever think that someone needs patience to deal with you? I mean, we often don't think of it that way. I have need of patience to deal with all these people. Did you ever think they're saying the same thing about you? Boy, I really need patience to deal with my husband, to deal with my wife, to deal with my kids, kids to deal with my parents. We have need of patience with everyone else, and you might be the tribulation that produces patience in someone else. You might be the sandpaper that's polishing some saint of God. They need patience just to put up with you. We need patience with all. But that's not it. We need to learn how to relate to those who lead us and to those who need us, and finally, to those who wrong us. Look at verse 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Never pay back wrong for wrong. Bishop Lightfoot, that scholar of a couple generations before, said because this is repeated three times in the Scripture, here, Romans 12, 1 Peter 3, and the grammar is the same, the formula is the same, he believes this is a direct quote from Jesus, one that is in attributed, perhaps, clearly to Jesus, but comes from the lips of the Savior. You never pay back. Now, that's our natural instinct, to get even. Our natural instinct is to vindicate ourselves, to defend our name, to clear our reputation. And sometimes that kind of thing could be appropriate, but we want to go further than that. We want to make them pay. We want to hurt those who hurt us. We want to give back wrong for wrong received. And the great Lord of our soul, the Savior of our soul, is the one who said, you know, Father, forgive them as he was being crucified because they have no idea what they're doing. Don't pay back wrong wrong. Jesus is the one who says the same thing in similar terms in Matthew chapter 5. No retaliation. Ruth Graham once was being interviewed, the wife of the famous evangelist Billy Graham. And the interviewer said, Ruth, is it hard to live with Billy? I mean, he's a world figure. He's gone a lot. Everyone wants a piece of his time. She says, yeah, sometimes it's very difficult. It is hard. The interviewer said, in all of your marriage, have you ever thought of divorce? And she said, no, never. Never thought of divorce. Murder several times. <laughs> never thought of divorce. And that's our natural response, to get even. But Jesus says, don't do that. And not only that, he says, I'm not looking for passive 
tolerance of a bad situation. And this is probably in reference to those who are persecuting them. He goes on to say, Paul says, always strive to be kind. Always try to be kind to each other. Not just to believers, but to everyone else, even those who are persecuting you. The difficult people inside the church and the persecuting people on the outside of the church. And the NIV here is probably a bit too feeble. Try to be kind. Give it a shot. The original actually sounds like this. Strive. Make every effort. It's a forceful construction. Put every ounce of energy you can into this mission. Be kind to everyone. George Truitt used to say, be kind to everyone because everyone's having a rough time. That's a good perspective. Everyone's having a rough time. So be kind. Jesus was. And being kind to others... As it says in Romans chapter 12, when you don't take vengeance, when you don't try to be the one that sets the record straight, when you don't get revenge on your heart and make them pay, God will keep heap burning coals of fire upon their heads. Vengeance is mine, God says, I will repay. And when he does, real conviction will come. God can do the vengeance work better than you. He'll be far more effective. We're told to be kind. That's the Jesus way. I pastored for seven years near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and you might remember a few years ago a killer going into an Amish one-room schoolhouse and killing some children. Remember that? That happened, oh, maybe seven, ten miles from where we lived, really on the other side of Lancaster. And we knew some of the Amish people who knew those individuals, had a chance to talk with them. It's a horrible story. This killer came in and lined up the kids against the wall and took their life and then killed himself. What are those Amish families going to do? Well, a book was written about it. These Amish families went to the killer's wife and forgave her and then provided resources for her. I can't even remember all of the resources. And she was so overwhelmed by their kindness. And the title of the book was Amish Forgiveness. I don't like the title. I like the story, but I don't like the title. That should be the Jesus way. <laughs> because this is how God tells us to forgive and us to respond. And when we do this, when we live this way, when we get along with one another like this, I'm convinced there's no power, more powerful force in all of the world than a church that's dedicated to the glory of God, filled with the Spirit of God, and living like the Son of God. And that's what we need to be in Lansing, Michigan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read all of these appeals and commands and Soon forget the ones we've just looked at as we go to another. It's so hard for us to keep our arms around it all, but Lord, may we remember simply the fact that we are to learn to relate to one another in peace and patience and kindness. And as we do, you'll work in and through our assembly in such a way 
that the world will hear about the kind, forgiving Savior we love and serve. Lord, if there are problems we have with one another in this body, may they be settled today. Lord, if our hearts are characterized by stubbornness, give us patience and humility. Let us play the role we are to play in the family of God faithfully, working hard, loving one another, enduring persecution, not paying wrong for wrong, but being committed to kindness so that others might know that Jesus lives. Lord, I pray that you'll take us from here today intent on the mission to be a church dedicated to the glory of God, filled with the Spirit of God and living like the Son of God, in whose name we pray. And all the people of God said, Amen. You're dismissed.